Details, details, details. It's all about the details. Some people are not detail-oriented people. They, they just want the big picture. They figure things out as they go along through life. But others, they're all about the details. Their lives are dominated by the details. For some people, this is a good thing. If you're an architect or an engineer and you're designing a bridge, you better get the details right. You know how much load that bridge can bear. Back in my engineering days, I worked for a broadcast and network engineering company, and one of our main projects was designing ESPN's brand-new state-of-the-art broadcast center in Bristol, Connecticut. And that facility was going to have millions of cables and connections and pieces of equipment. And it's not about the big picture. It's about the details. You have to get all those little details right for the big picture to work. Missing key details can be disastrous. Last year, a massive cargo jet came within just feet of landing on top of workers who were completing an unfinished runway. It was in broad daylight, clear weather. So how did this happen? Well, it's all because the airport diagram the pilots relied on appeared to show that runway was open. It's just a little detail. It's pretty significant, though, not something you want to miss. Most times, details really do matter in life. And many details can change everything. And that's certainly true when it comes to theology. In the days of Jesus, for example, every single Jew had some important piece of doctrine wrong, all because of one little detail. Literally, every Jew had had a misconception about the Messiah to one degree or another. It can all be traced back to one little detail that they all had missed. You see, all the Jews in Christ's day, they assumed and believed that the Old Testament only spoke of one coming of the Messiah. The Messiah would come, he'd deliver Israel, he'd reign on the throne forever, and then that's it. That's the end of the age. But what if there were actually two comings of the Messiah? That would change everything. I mean, that, that would that'd be huge. That's something you, you had better not miss if that's true. Yet the Jews in Christ's day, they all had missed that detail. And so it's no wonder that many of them failed to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. They were all operating off this assumption that the Messiah would come once as a conquering king. Here Jesus came. He didn't look like a conquering king. So they wrote him off. But if they only recognized that the Messiah was destined to come twice for two purposes, well, it would have changed everything. Christ's own disciples actually had the same problem. They likewise subscribed to this notion that the Messiah was only going to come once. That's why when they came to realize and recognize Jesus as the Messiah, they got so excited. Why? Because it meant the kingdom was at hand. It meant Jesus was going to restore prominence to Israel and usher in the kingdom any moment. They were in those days, they thought. And that's why after this, we always see the disciples arguing with one another about what? About who's going to be first in the kingdom. They're out there trying to sort out the pecking order. Like, hey guys, get Jesus, he's going to take the throne, and then after that, who's going to be second and third and fourth? Like, who's going to be next? That's how we see James and John in secret going up to Jesus and saying, okay, when you sit in your glory, we want to be on your right and on your left. We want number two and number three. They think that's going to happen any moment. James and John ask that of Jesus, actually right after he had told them what's going to happen to him in Jerusalem. He just told them, hey guys, I'm going to the holy city, not actually to reign as king, but to die. The Messiah has to be rejected by the people, killed, and then rise again. 
disciples, they never fully understood that. It didn't make any sense. That's why the first time Jesus told the disciples about his true mission, Peter rebuked him. Why? Because the Messiah can't die. You're supposed to come and like take over Israel and, and throw off Rome and reign and rule. Like you're, You can't die. That doesn't fit the plan. It doesn't make sense. And then you have James and John, and here they're appearing to totally disregard what Jesus just said to them about his death. Instead, they're just going back to their kingdom pecking order. The disciples just can't handle the concepts of a dead Messiah or a Messiah who comes without ushering in the full kingdom. But you see, one of the disciples' main sources of confusion was this one little detail they failed to grasp, namely that there are two comings of the Messiah. Of course, they didn't fully realize this at the time because God had not fully opened their eyes to behold that truth. But nonetheless, that one detail would have changed everything. They would have understood like we do now looking back. We go, well, it makes sense. First, the Messiah had to come to die. He comes first as the suffering servant. Not to conquer Rome, but to conquer death. He first comes to die for the sins of the people, to redeem the lost sheep, to set up a spiritual kingdom on the earth. And then later he'll come back a second time to return, to reign, to judge forevermore. All this makes perfect sense to us now looking back because we have the benefit of the complete revelation of the New Testament. The disciples had no such benefit. No one ever told them that. They had not studied that. They had not thought that. No one had informed them about this. But that's about to change. We've been saying the Gospel of Mark here for quite some time on Sunday mornings. We're now in Christ's final week of life. Up to this point, Jesus has slowly but surely revealed his own true identity as the Messiah and his real mission as the Messiah. But so far, he hasn't really told them about his departure and the intermediate age and about his second coming until now. In the few days before his death on the cross, he finally reveals all those little details about his departure and his return. Several weeks ago, you may remember, we studied the ascension of Christ, which relates to his departure from the earth. The Messiah came, he died, he rose, and then he left. He ascended into heaven. That's all part of the plan, but the disciples, they didn't know about that. And Jesus waited until really the night before his death to tell them, to finally tell them, oh, by the way, after I die and rise, I'm leaving. And you can't, you can't come. In the upper room, and the night before he was crucified, he finally made it crystal clear that he would be leaving them. So, for example, John 13:33, he says, Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. He's leaving. He says over again, I'm leaving. Where is he going? He says, I go to the Father. I go to the Father. He's going to ascend into heaven. And when the disciples heard this, remember how it made them feel? Depressed. They were sad. John 16, verse 5 says, Jesus said, But now I'm going to him who sent me. But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. News of Christ's departure made them sad. Why? Because if the Messiah leaves, that means the kingdom won't come right away. At least not as they expected it. It means there's not going to be an earthly reign right now. There's not going to be any restoration for Israel or or the reign of God on earth. 
if the Messiah is gone, I mean, that's, that's not what we were expecting. So they're let down. In that same upper room discourse, Jesus encourages them, though. First, he encourages them with news of the helper, the Holy Spirit, who will replace him. That's, that's huge. We talked about that. But he also encourages them with the news that though he leaves, he will return. He will return. John 14.3, he says, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That was the second time Jesus had ever told them about his departure and then his return, that he would be coming back. There would be another coming of the Messiah. It wasn't the first time. The first time he told them was just a few days before that. Still in his final week, he was teaching in the temple, and then he left with his disciples, spent some alone time with his disciples. And then, for really the first time, he unloads on them a ton of revelation about the end. The end of the age. The fullness of the kingdom. The complete dominion of the king. They had some details wrong, so he's going to fill them in. Big time. The end is coming. The fullness of the kingdom is coming, but not yet. There will instead be a second coming of the Messiah with plenty of time in between. Jesus exposes them for the first time to very significant details about the future. And that goes for us as well, because here we are, and we're still living somewhere in between the first and second comings of the Messiah. And don't you want to know what comes next? Jesus told his disciples because he wanted them to know. He wanted them to be ready, to be prepared, to be alert. These are some critical details about the end, and you can't afford to miss them as well. These are details that you too need to get straight if you want to know what is to come and know how to live in the meantime, to be prepared, to be alert. We'll open your Bibles now to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13. Other than the book of Revelation, this is the longest and most significant prophetic passage in the New Testament. It's Christ's second longest message, recorded message, and its common title, the Olivet Discourse, comes from the fact that he gave it while sitting atop the Mount of Olives, while speaking to his disciples, looking at the temple. The same discourse has a parallel in Luke 21. The longer version is in Matthew 24 and 25. That's the that's a big version. Overall, though, it's important to recognize in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus is not being exhaustive. He's not telling us everything we need to know about the end times. But what makes the Olivet Discourse so remarkable is that here we get this broad, consistent, chronological picture of things to come. We're not going to get all the details about every little topic like the second coming. For that, we have to turn elsewhere. But we get a clear overview of things to come. Now, it's the whole chapter. (laughs) The Olivet Discourse is all of Mark 13. There's no way we're going to cover this all in one go. We're actually going to be spending many weeks going over this. There's a lot in here. I want to make sure we take our time and, and get it right. The chapter has natural breaks, so we'll be just taking one section at a time. But that said, with our time today, I want to give you some appreciation of the big picture. Even though we can't study the entire chapter in one go, I want to actually begin by reading through the entire chapter. 
Jesus gave this in one sitting. It's meant to be heard and considered in a whole. I don't want to. Lo- I don't want us to lose sight of the forest amid the trees. We're going to be getting into it quite detailed. But first, I want to help you just understand that big picture by by reading through the whole text, and then we'll talk about some some larger observations about about the Olivet discourse as a whole. So we're going to start now by reading through all of Mark 13. It's long. So try not to let your mind wander, but just stay with me. Follow along as I read through the Olivet Discourse. Follow along now, Mark 13, starting at verse 1. As he was going out out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately. Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? And Jesus began to say to them, See to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he and will mislead many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, as a testimony to them, the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Verse 14, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. The one who's on the housetop must not go down or go in to get anything out of his house. And the one who is in the field must not turn back to get his coat. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that it may not happen in the winter. For those days will be a time of tribulation. Such as, such as has not occurred since the beginning of creation, which God created until now and never will. Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened those days. And then if anyone says to you, behold, he is, here is the Christ, or behold, he is there, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But take heed, behold, I have told you everything in advance. Verse 24, But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. Now, learn the parable from the fig tree. 
when its branch has already become tender and put forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near, right at the door. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Take heed, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. It's like a man away on a journey, who upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Therefore, be on the alert. For you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, in case he should come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. Now, it's a big passage, and there's a lot in there. And this is the short version. There's so many details and strange concepts and foreign terms. It might make you wonder, you know, what did I just read? What was he saying? I mean, what, what's going on here? Is that, was that real or symbolic? Is that past or present or future? Many people, when they approach such passages, they feel overwhelmed by prophetic passages, and they don't even want to bother to, to attempt to unravel them. There's just like too much going on. It's too confusing. I, I, can't, I can't do this. That's why we're going to be over many weeks taking our time because we want to carefully unravel what Jesus is saying here, and we want to get it right. Remember, what he says is meant to be understandable. He's telling them so that they will not be led astray or misled. And like Mark says in verse 14, let the reader understand. You are meant to understand. He's putting together pieces of the puzzle. And although we may not have every single piece, we can get a clear picture of things to come. Let's actually start with that as we continue here, the the big picture. This discourse has several different sections with very clear breaks in between. And we're pretty much going to be devoting one sermon to each of these sections as time goes on. But I want to start, again, giving you the the big picture, the flow of this whole chapter, this whole discourse. How does it go? Well, it starts in verses 1 through 4, which really set the stage for the whole discourse. Christ's teaching is actually spawned by a question the disciples had for him. And this marks his longest answer to any question ever, at least that we have recorded. This is all an answer to a question. It's a long answer. We'll be studying the questions they have a little bit more later today, so we'll come back to it. But in essence, they're wondering, when's the end? When will be the end of the age? The parallel in Matthew 24, the question is very clear and explicit. They say, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? It's what they want to know. So Jesus answers, and he picks up on their primary question regarding the anticipation of the coming kingdom and the messianic age. They're wondering, okay, when's when's that age going to begin and this age going to end? And he starts off by telling them when the end is not. Like verse 7 says, When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. You see, he's answering their question, when's the end going to happen? What's the sign? He's like, that's not it yet. It's close, but that's not it. He's telling them what it will be like in the days leading up to the end. Verse 8. For nation will rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. 
These things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Now, we'll look at this passage a whole lot more next time, but what's the basic idea of a birth pang? It's a sign that the baby is near. Birth pangs are not the end. They signal the beginning of labor, not the end of labor. But once they begin, that baby's coming. It's going to end with the baby. And the birth pangs will intensify as the labor draws on. And it's the same thing. That's the same nature of all these signs and calamities given in verses 5 through 13. They don't signify the end, but they signify that the end has begun. And there comes a clear transition in verse 14. He says, But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and so on. The key phrase here is when you see. This is a sign to be observed. When you see this, you know the end. It's, it's coming fast. It is quickly approaching. We will learn as time goes on, this is a clear reference to the midpoint of the tribulation period foreseen in Daniel and Revelation as well. The tribulation in general is a seven-year time of unprecedented calamity on the earth. It's unmatched. Verse 19, he says, For in those days, or rather for those days, will be a time of tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of creation, which God created until now and never will. He goes all the way back to the beginning. That means it includes the flood. This will be worse than the flood, the calamity on the earth. That time is characterized by deception. And the chief culprit is a figure we call the Antichrist. He's the one who sets up the abomination of desolation in the temple. We'll explain all that a lot more later on. But after that, after that incident, after the whole tribulation, comes another sign. And that sign tells you the end has come. Verse 24. He says, But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will be falling from heaven and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And this is the second coming of the Christ. Christ returns at the culmination of the tribulation and ushers in his kingdom. Again, not every detail of these events are related here, but he's giving us a basic schematic of what's to come. And he finishes by telling two parables, instructing us to discern the signs of the times and to be alert. And those prove to be very significant messages on their own right. And so in the weeks to come, we'll be devoting plenty of attention to each of these little sections in the Olivet Discourse, wanting to get right what he's saying, what he means. He wants us to know and to understand. He wants us to be ready. And believe it or not, this whole chapter contains some very practical teaching, even for the church today. Now, speaking of today, though, meaning this morning, I want to take us back with the time we have left to verses 1 through 4, because that's really all we're going to be able to handle with this little bit of time. This is kind of the introductory message to the Olivet Discourse. But I want to take you back to these first verses, because they're actually pretty significant. If you don't understand the circumstances and the context of this whole discourse, you're you're going to get it wrong. You need to go back. You need to see how did this whole thing begin? What What spawned this whole discussion? And it goes back to verse 1. It says, As he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. 
Right before this, Jesus was in the temple complex with his disciples. This is during his final week in Jerusalem. And on this day, he was teaching in the temple among the crowds, but he left, went with his disciples for some alone time. During his time in the temple, though, while he was there, he was also exposing the hypocrisy of the religious leaders and their entire corrupt system that they had made as leading the people astray. He said they're like whitewashed tombs. Outside, they're shiny. They're looking good as they go through all the motions. But inside, they're, they're dead. They're spiritually dead. Theirs is not a true worship. And like, if your heart doesn't belong to God, he doesn't care if you go through all the motions. Jesus, as we studied, pronounced several woes upon the religious leaders and their entire system of works righteousness. And, but think about this. What was at the very center of this corrupt system of worship? The temple. The temple. The temple was meant to be a house of worship and prayer, but they had turned it into a den of thieves and a place of business. Temple is, that's where you go to go through the motions, you know, make a little donation, offer a sacrifice, say a little prayer, and then, and then you're good. Go about your business and go back to life. It was all of this dead tradition that God didn't care about. It was corrupt. And as we saw last week, the temple was even a place where widows were robbed. And because of this, Jesus pronounced woes not just on the religious leaders and their system, but on the temple itself because this was the centerpiece of their false system. Listen to this passage, Matthew 23. This is the same day. This is before he leaves the temple. So he's still in the temple. And he says this in Matthew 23, 37-39. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's actually a very significant prophetic pronouncement by Jesus. Israel's Messiah had come to them, but they rejected him. They were not willing to receive him. Therefore, he will turn away from them. Israel, as a nation, will be hardened and cut off. Not forever. Verse 39 says he, they will be cut off until they recognize Jesus as the Messiah. We'll learn that's the end of the tribulation. But for now, their time of ju- discipline and judgment has come. And he says in, in that verse, Matthew 23, even their house will be left to them desolate. What, what house? What's he talking about? The, the temple. And as he leaves the temple, his father's house on that day, he pronounces that it will be destroyed. And that no doubt confuses the disciples. You have to realize that the temple was a magnificent building. This was the second temple. It was totally renovated by Herod the Great. He had this massive foundation built, this this temple mount. Some of the stones were a hundred tons. It was the size of a couple of football fields, featured many structures and courts. It was just brilliant. The temple building itself, the actual temple, was huge it was made of white, polished marble. And a lot of wealthy Jews, they would come and they would donate stones and precious gems and, and, and diamonds and whatnot. And they would affix them to the walls so it literally sparkled in places. The entire eastern wall was covered in gold. And so when it caught the sunlight, it just blinded you with this, this brilliant display of sunlight. It was a stunning building. It was marvelous. And so the disciples, they wondered, how could something so magnificent 
become desolate. They're just wiped out. They didn't get it. And so as they leave the temple that day, they, they kind of poke Jesus and they say, verse 1, back in Mark 13, Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. It's like they're trying to encourage Jesus to not be so pessimistic. They're like, Jesus, okay, we know you're really upset with the, the religious leaders, but at least the temple is good, right? At least the temple is a pretty building, right? But they don't get it. And so verse 2, Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. It's quite the prediction. And far from saying anything nice about the temple, Jesus only has harsh words of condemnation, namely that this entire structure is going to be torn down. Even further, he says, not even one stone will be left upon another. That's pretty extreme. Jesus said this to his disciples as they were leaving the temple. It's probably close to sunset. They leave the east gate of the city. They head down across the Kidron Valley. They ascend the western slope of the Mount of Olives toward Bethany where they stay for the night. It's a 30 to 40 minute walk. And during this time, I'm sure the disciples, their heads are spinning. They're thinking, what does Jesus mean? What's he talking about? How can the temple be destroyed? It just doesn't make sense. They're confused. And finally, they get the Mount of Olives. Jesus takes a seat. The view of the temple would have been glorious in the sunset. And all the more in contrast to what Jesus just had said. And so this is their chance. They, this is their chance to ask him for some clarification. And that's what they do. Verse 3. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately. Verse 4. Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? Again, their question for Jesus is made a little more explicit in Matthew. Matthew 24, 3, they ask, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? They're basically asking two questions. Jesus said the temple will be left desolate, so they want to know, one, when's that going to happen? And two, what will be the sign of, of your return, your coming, and the end of the age? Now, here's what you have to realize as you look at this. You need to transport yourself back, put yourself in their sandals, look from their perspective of how they viewed the situation. Their understanding was that the Messiah would come and the, the age would end all at the same time. There's one coming of the Messiah, and when he comes, it's over. It's the end of the age. The Messiah would come to Jerusalem. He would ascend as king. He would overthrow Israel's enemies. He would restore Israel to prominence. And then he would rule and reign over the world, over the nations forever. Every Jew longed for this, especially as they're living under fierce Roman opposition and oppression. And that's their hope. And that hope is largely established in the Old Testament. A lot of that, since there's nothing wrong with that hope, but they, they, they're missing a few details. Up to this point, the disciples believed that that was going to happen at any moment. In fact, Luke chapter 19, it's right before the triumphal entry, before Jesus enters the city. And Luke 19.11 says that they were so excited as they're getting close to Jerusalem, the disciples. Why? Luke 19.11 says, because they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. They thought it's going to happen right now. Here's a triumphal entry. There's thousands of Jews gathering this crowd as he gets close to the city. They're claiming him as the Messiah. They're shouting Hosanna. They think this is it. Peter, James, and John especially they witnessed the transfiguration. 
So they especially are thinking, this is it, that transfiguration glory, that kingdom, it's coming. But they should have paid a little more attention to Christ's own words. Jesus knew their expectations were wrong. So in Luke 19, right after that verse, after 1911, tells a little parable. We don't have time to tell it, but I'll summarize it. Tells them a little parable featuring a, a king, a ruler, who went away to receive his kingdom, and then he returned to reign and to rule. That's actually, it sounds a little confusing, but it's actually common in the Roman world. The Herods, for example, who ruled over Israel, they were not sovereign. Their authority came from Caesar. And so when Herod the Great came to take over the kingdom, he had to go to Rome and receive his kingdom by Caesar's authority, and then he came back and he started to reign and to rule over Israel. And it's the same with Jesus. After his death and resurrection, he goes to the Father to receive all authority over heaven and earth. And when the time is right, he will return to reign and to exercise his full authority over earth. That's what that parable teaches. The earthly reign of the Messiah begins with his second coming, not his first. And you, by the way, the parable also says you had better live rightly right now because the king may return at any moment. As a quick side note, Revelation chapter 11, verse 17, there's praise in heaven right before Jesus returns. Why? They say to the Lord, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. You've taken your power and you've begun to reign. That's reference to the second coming, his reign on the earth. The disciples, though, they, don't, they still don't get it. It's all flying over their heads. We don't even know if they really heard what he was saying there loud and clear. As he got, got closer to the city during that triumphal entry, they definitely didn't hear this or they didn't pay attention. Listen to Luke 19, verses 41 through 44. It says, When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For these days, for rather for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. The Jewish people and the leaders have been given so many chances. Their Messiah had finally come to them. He came. He offered the kingdom, even with signs and wonders. But they rejected him in favor of their own dead religion. They were hardened, and so the Messiah was hidden. He came with words of peace and salvation. But in rejecting him, they sealed their own doom. And that doom would be highlighted by the doom of the entire city and of the temple itself which was the focal point of their false religion of works. And that's why right after that, in Luke 19, Jesus entered the temple and he cleaned house. This has no place. This is his father's house. It doesn't belong, but it will be doomed. Now back then, in Luke 19, the the first day of the triumphal entry, Jesus predicted the temple would be destroyed, but they didn't get it. They they went totally over their heads. But now back in Mark 13, this, this third day, they're leaving the city. He makes another prediction, and they hear it. They hear it loud and clear, but they don't get it. Jesus again says the temple will be destroyed, but it doesn't compute. The Messiah is supposed to lead Israel into glory, 
not destruction. And the temple, that's the centerpiece of Israel's glory, they thought. So how could the Messiah want the temple to be destroyed? It doesn't make any sense. But again, one big source of their confusion was that they expected all the prophecies about the Messiah to be fulfilled at the same time. And the temple being destroyed threw a big wrench into their expectations. But what we see in Mark 13, they're starting to understand, though, they're starting to come around and realize that there's going to be a little gap before Jesus reigns in his kingdom glory. They're starting to see that even though Jesus is here, the end of the age might not be as close as they thought. And that's why they ask him. That's why they say, Jesus, okay, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Tell, just tell us when. They're realizing that the fullness of the kingdom might be delayed. And so they wonder, if not now, then when? When are you going to show up in that transfiguration kingdom glory to deliver Israel? They still don't have a full concept of a second coming. That's going to come in the next few days here, but they're starting to see some delay in the fullness of the kingdom. So like we established, one major source of their confusion was their failure to see two comings of the Messiah. And related to that is their assumption that all these events go together. They still are thinking this all goes together, the destruction of Jerusalem and the coming of the Messiah and the end of the age. But that also is not quite true. Yes, the temple would be destroyed, just like Jesus said. That was fulfilled in AD 70 by the Romans under future emperor Titus. The Jews rebelled, which led to a Roman invasion, and Jerusalem was sieged and the city fell. Everyone was slaughtered. A fire was set in the temple and it burned so hot and fiercely that the, the stones literally crumbled. The Romans came in and they sifted through all the rubble because they wanted all the gold and the gems that were there. And they literally took every single stone and piece of rubble and heaped it into the Kidron Valley. And literally, not one stone was left upon another when they were done. Josephus recorded that after the Romans, the whole temple area was so devastated you, had, you would have not known it was ever inhabited. Literally, their house was left to them desolate. And the destruction of the temple in AD 70, that was a hugely significant event. But it's not the end. It wasn't the end. It may have been a precursor, a type of foreshadowing of the end, but it was not the end of the age. Rather, more time would elapse before the end, before the Son of Man would come. And that is what Jesus talks about in the Olivet Discourse. That's what he's going to talk about from verses 5 to the end. He doesn't want them to be misled. He wants them to understand future things. They're not going to know the day or the hour. Nobody does. But he wants them to be informed and to be ready for when the day comes. And he wants them to live accordingly in the meantime. And all of that applies to us as well. It's no different for us. There's a lot to see here, so again, over many weeks to come, we'll spend plenty of time hearing now how Jesus answers those questions about the signs of his coming and the end of the age. This is a fitting final thought, though. I think, I think it is fitting that we don't go any further than these introductory verses which highlight the destruction of the temple because actually, already, just in the first four verses, there's an extremely practical lesson for you to learn, even an application. Now, as you reflect on the destruction of the temple, you're meant to, you're meant to think and pause and, and recall, why'd that happen? 
Why was the temple destroyed? Why was Jerusalem destroyed? Why were all those people doomed and rejected? Well, the answer is because they rejected Christ. This is not an unmerited judgment. They were given so many opportunities to repent and to believe. And their own Messiah had finally come to them, attested with signs and wonders. He brought peace and righteousness. He brought salvation and true deliverance from the ultimate enemies of sin and death. But they didn't care. They rejected the the fountain of living water and hewed for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. They didn't want to repent. They loved self. They weren't going to bow the knee to a Lord, a master over their life. They didn't want that. And they didn't really need a Savior. I mean, they were good. They were good people. They were righteous. They kept the law. They didn't really need a Savior. And so they turned them away. But in turning away the Messiah, they, they dug their own grave. When you reject God's offer of mercy and forgiveness and salvation, what do you have left? Nothing but judgment. And if you become hardened in your sin and persistent in your rebellion, sometimes your own doom may be sealed in this life. And that's what Jesus was doing with Jerusalem and the temple. They were hardened in unbelief, so Jesus sealed their doom. And that is the only outcome for those who do not bow the knee to the Lord. Mentioned that parable back in Luke 19. Jesus speaks of the ruler who went away and came back to return. And when he came back, there were some people who didn't want him to reign over them. What do you think happened when the king came back to reign over his kingdom? Jesus says, and this is how he ends that parable, Luke 19.27. He says, But these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. And that's how it ends. It's bad news for those who reject. But there's still so much hope for good news for you. It's not too late for you if you learn the lesson of the doomed temple. This is what happens to those who reject the Son. But you still have a chance to accept Him and be blessed if you would confess Him as Lord and Savior and God and King. Believe in Him. The day of your visitation is today. Today is a day of salvation. Renounce yourself. Confess your sin. Give Him your life. Follow Him. And you'll receive Him and the eternal life that He brings. Dark days are ahead. We're going to learn a lot about them in the weeks to come. And whatever you believe about those days, I'll tell you one thing for sure. You want to be on His side when He returns. You want to be aligned with Christ. You want Him as your Lord. So that when He does return, it is not to judge you that you perish, but to rescue you that you live. Seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he's near. Let's pray. O Lord in heaven and our Savior in heaven, we long for that return, for your return, for you to come back. And we pray you come quickly. Like the disciples, even though they had a few details wrong at the time, we we too have that same longing for your reign, for your rule of peace and righteousness, even upon this earth, that you redeem and restore this earth before the new heavens and the new earth. We long for that. This world has fallen, it's dark, and it's only getting darker. And it seems like it's, it's getting dark pretty fast. 
We know you've left us here to be your witnesses, to shine as light, and we know our lights will shine brighter as the darkness gets darker. But still, we we don't want to be here. We want to be with you. And we trust you in the meantime, and we be strong and courageous in the meantime, but, but again, come quickly, our Lord. Give us great humility and illumination as we study these words in the many weeks to come. May it be a profitable, informative, and, and even encouraging study. Because we need to know. You've, you've told us so that we might know and that we might be ready and that we might live appropriately in the meantime. And that be our focus as we go forward, even leaving here from today, living rightly in light of the King who's gone, but he will return. Lift up your name in praise and long for you to come quickly, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.